0: Good morning. morning. So you guys ready for awkward? (laughs) Well you better get ready because it's about to get awkward up in here. Um, When I was 14 years old I had a buddy named Kevin and Kevin was a couple of years older than me uh, and he was this fantastic skier. He had this reputation everybody talked about oh Kevin is this great skier and And uh, so I used to talk to him like uh, I knew about skiing and I wanted to be a great skier. And I, you know, and one day he said, well, we should go skiing together. But I had never skied. And I didn't know anything about skiing. And I said, oh, you know what? I don't have any equipment. He goes, that's okay. I got extra. And he gave me all of his equipment. And he said, I'll pick you up at five. We're going to go skiing. So as we're headed up the mountain, I confessed to him, look, I've never skied before. (laughs) I don't have any idea what I'm doing. And uh, he said, that's all right, I'm going to teach you. And so he said, okay, so we get there, and I don't know if you've ever skied before, but you you get there, you pay, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars, and they give you a thing that's clips to your jacket so you can ride in the chairlift. And, uh, and you stand at the bottom of the hill, and there at the bottom, at the very bottom, there's a kind of very nice little mostly flat area called the Bunny, Bunny Hill, right? And I said oh look, there's a bunny hill and there's little kids, you know, and they got their skis pointed together and they're going down real nice and slow. And I said, okay, that's where we're going, right? And he goes, no, that's the bunny hill. We don't go to bunny hills. I said, okay, well, where are we going? And he said, you see that chairlift and it goes up into the clouds? That's where we're going. I said, but I I don't, I've never done this before. I don't know how to do this. He goes, that's okay. I'm going to teach you. I'm going to tell you while we're on the chairlift how to do this. I said, okay. So as we're on the chairlift, I see the people on the bunny hill. And I see how they're going nice and slow. They got their tips together so they don't go too fast. It's called snow plowing. And they're sort of snow plowing down the hill. And I said, so is that what you do? He goes, no, 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 that's what they do on the bunny hill but what we're going to do is we're going to get our skis straight together and we're going to point them down the hill and we're going to go that way. I said, yeah, but that's advanced, isn't it? He goes, well, what's the point in learning how to do it wrong and then having to learn how to do it right? I'm going to teach you how to do it right from the beginning. So we, meanwhile, it's been like, I don't know, two or three hours we're still going up on this thing, right? <laughs> and and then we're just getting higher and higher. And I keep looking behind me and going, wow, the slope looks steeper from up high than it does from down low, right? And and I remember that as we we're getting off, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, all of this talking I did, I should have kept my mouth shut. I'm embarrassed. He goes, look, you're an athlete. Any good athlete can do this. Don't worry. And I'm like, I'm not an athlete. And my heart is beginning to beat fast and I'm beginning to get nervous and I'm heading up and then there's that point when you get to the top and you have to get off the chairlift, which is a feat in itself if you've never done it before, right? So if you survive that, that's a good sign. So I did that and I got off and then we ski to the edge to where you're like standing on the edge and your tips are over the edge and then it goes down like that. And he goes, here's what we're gonna do. I'm going to go down. I'll go down about 50 feet or so and then stop. And then you just do what I did. (laughs) And I almost wet my pants. (laughs) I remember standing up there and going, this is impossible. I'm going to die. I'm definitely going to die doing this. But at the same time, I was super excited because I had always wanted to try this. And I remember that feeling of being both super excited and being filled with trepidation at the same time. That's how I feel this morning. Hey, what <laughs> I'm here. <laughs> this morning, guys, I have that mixture of excitement and trepidation. That, and, and when I started thinking about how I was feeling this week going into today, that was the story that came to my mind. I was like, this is just like learning to ski because I've been doing this a long time and I stand up here most every week and I bring the word of God and and you know what? I don't get nervous. I don't sit in the chair with my heart beating fast going, oh my gosh, what if they don't like me? Oh, what if I say the wrong thing? All the stuff that most people feel about public speaking, I don't feel that with you guys because I'm used to being here, right? So I'm okay with that. But this week I've just been feeling that mixture of, of excitement. And trepidation, like you feel as you're headed up the first lift of a roller coaster and it's going click, 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 and you're getting closer and closer. That's kind of how I feel. Because I've been thinking about this series for about a year now. That The plan was I was supposed to preach this series in the fall before I went into the hospital. And so I was already working on this back last spring, and I've been thinking about the details of this and and the subject matter and all that, because I think there are some things that people really need to know biblically about, but for various reasons, we just don't talk about those things in church. Um, One reason is because they're too controversial, and And you realize that when you're speaking to a crowd of any size, there's going to be some people in the crowd who are going to disagree with what you had to say. There's a great chance you're going to upset somebody. There's a great chance you're going to get an email or two or 50 or 100 that complain and say things that you don't want to hear. Um, And it's controversial. It can split a church when you start getting into these topics that are so touchy. And so we generally try to avoid that. Um, We also don't want to be misunderstood. I think that's one of the reasons pastors don't talk about a lot of these issues. We don't want to be misunderstood. We don't want to be misjudged, which I find incredibly ironic. We don't want to be misunderstood, so we say nothing. And in saying nothing, we leave ourselves open for everybody else to decide what it is that Christians believe about these topics. Um, and, And for me, one of the big reasons to stay away from these topics is frankly, it's just really tough. When I look out upon a group of people like this, I go, man, there are males and females, men, I mean, men and women and children. There's older people, single people, younger people, married people. And you start getting into a lot of these topics. There are people who have a lot of money. There are people who don't have much money at all. There are people of one political persuasion. And then there are people that are just as opposite of them as you could be. And and that's true in a, in a group this size. So you know, I look at that and I go, man, it's just really hard to know what's appropriate to say. Um, you, you know, when you start getting into topics like sex, you don't want to start talking about stuff that is inappropriate for the room. And so rather than take a chance on doing that, what we tend to do is go, well, we'll save that for the counseling sessions and we won't talk about that. We'll say a little bit in the youth group, like, hey, don't mess around till you get married, and then we'll kind of leave it at that. And that's working great, isn't it? No, not so much. And so my concern is that here we are as Christians living today in our culture, in our world, and we have to navigate these waters and we have to figure this stuff out. And we're doing it to a great degree without any input from spiritual leaders or from the Bible because we don't know what the Bible says about this. And that brings me to another point. One of my pet peeves in the world is when I hear somebody, and this is usually somebody outside of Christianity, outside the church, say something like, the Bible is completely irrelevant. The Bible is irrelevant. I mean, the book was written thousands of years ago. We don't live like they live. Our culture is completely different. Things have changed. And, and to take an ancient book and try to stick it into our lives is completely pointless because it's irrelevant for us today. What bothers me even more than that is when I hear people in the church who say things like, you know, the job of the preacher is to make the Bible relevant to us. As if somehow the Bible's not already relevant. So what we have to understand is it's not my job to take this poor, ancient, irrelevant manuscript and make it relevant in our lives today. The Bible is relevant. It is relevant already. It is relevant in your life. It was relevant to people who lived 1,000 years ago. It is relevant to people who lived 500 years ago. It is relevant to people who live in China. It is relevant to people who live in Australia. It is relevant to old people, relevant to young people, relevant to married people and single people. It is relevant to people everywhere over every time because it was written by God himself. And he knows... He knew what we needed to hear. He knew the principles that we needed to understand. And he has given us in his word principles that are forever relevant. And we may not like to talk about certain topics. We're gonna be talking about money, sex, and politics these next several weeks. We may not like to bring those things up in church, but I'm gonna tell you, the Bible is full of verses, principles, and stories about those subjects. Jesus himself talked about money all the time. Out of all the parables that he told, he told 38 parables that we have recorded in the Gospels. Out of those 38 parables, 16 of them were about money. In the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, one out of every 10 verses is dedicated to the topic of money and possessions and how we ought to do with them. If you, if you sort of scan the entire Bible, you're going to find roughly 500 verses dealing directly with prayer. You're going to find less than 500 verses dealing directly with faith. And you're going to find over 2,000 verses dealing directly with money and possessions. So let's not think that our struggles and questions and issues with money and possessions are not dealt with in Scripture because they are. The Bible is full of information about sex and sexuality. You know, I don't want to get anybody distracted, but if you want to, go home this week and uh, light a candle and read Song of Solomon. And you will blush. Because Song of Solomon is this amazing sex poem. And the whole thing is written about the richness of the sex life between this man and his wife. And it is explicit and it is heart pounding. And I just want to go home and read it now. <laughs> I know some of you are thumbing through Song of Solomon. I wonder if there's pictures. <laughs> but the Bible deals with sex all the time. Why? Because it's written for human beings who, by the way, happen to be sexual creatures. The Bible deals with politics from beginning to end. The whole Old Testament is primarily about political systems, kings and kingdoms, nations at war, legal systems, and has entire books of the Old Testament just devoted to giving us laws and how those laws ought to be interpreted and what our political leaders ought to be doing and what we as citizens ought to be doing. That's the Old Testament. You turn to the New Testament, you find that Jesus is constantly dealing with political leaders, whether they're... political leaders or their secular political leaders he is constantly dealing with them and he is not shying away from controversial issues and he is addressing them again and again and again and his cousin John the Baptist the great prophet of the New Testament gets his head chopped off because he had the gall to challenge a political leader about a sexual issue Paul is constantly being ushered in before judges and jailers and governors and kings. And he's addressing them and the political issues of his day. So let's take a deep breath and let's dig into God's word and see where we can learn, what we can learn about these things that are so crucial to our lives And also addressed so carefully in Scripture. But before we actually open the Word, I want to give you a few words of explanation about this sermon series. This sermon series is going to be different. If you're new around here, you don't know any different, So you just have to agree you're going to get through this sermon series and then stay for the next one. Then you'll have a better idea of how things normally are. But this sermon series is going to be different Um, everything that I do, whether it's in this sermon series or any other, or Pastor Dave or Pastor Byron or any other guest preacher that we bring in here is always based on preaching the truth of the Word of God. That's it. We don't do anything else. We're not interested in the latest pop psychology or some book written by somebody and how we can apply that to our lives. We figure until we've got this book figured out and applied in our lives, we're just going to keep preaching it and preaching it and preaching it, amen? That's it, right? So that's not going to change, but it is going to feel more like teaching than preaching during this sermon series. Um, Frankly, it's going to get more philosophical than usual. We're going to have to dig into some stuff. I think one of the reasons that we're so fuzzy headed about these topics is because we haven't done a good job in the body of Christ of digging in. Instead, we settle for these little simplistic, short little comments that really don't help people. So Uh, One of our problems in this culture is that we love simplistic, rhetorical, provocative statements, whether it's uh, something that we're saying in our living room, or if it's something that we're putting on social media, or even what we hear on television news or read in the newspapers or magazines, and, and there's just things designed to get you to click on them. They're just simple, little rhetorical statements that really don't add up to much, and if you think carefully about them, you throw them out the window and go, they don't mean anything. And we can't settle for that as the body of Christ. We have to do better. We've gotten lazy. Most of us don't like to think carefully. Most of us don't like to study. Most of us uh, will take a topic that we have very little knowledge about, but we have strong feelings about, and we will spout off about it as if we knew what we were talking about. And as a result, and, and it's not just Christians who do that, everybody in our culture seems to do that. This is happening in the news, it's happening on social media, it's happening in classrooms, it's happening everywhere. And so we need to do better than that, because in this sermon series, I'm going to ask you to slow down. I'm going to ask you to think more carefully. I'm going to take some time and lay foundation for some some ideas that we're going to present later that without that foundation will will not stand. And it's going to be tough to do that, um, because... We only have like two to three weeks on each of these topics in order to do this. Um, And already today, I've already preached this sermon once today, and I got halfway through my notes. So uh, it's very difficult and I'm sincerely asking you to pray for me because... So much stuff needs to end up on the cutting room floor, and I need to figure out what it is we need to bring here in what I consider to be a relatively short amount of time that I get to speak every week. I I know you might not think it's such a short time. So that's number one. It's going to be different. Number two, I'm so excited about this. You get to ask questions. In this sermon series, you get to ask questions. So not, not just yet. You get to ask questions. And... Um, let me tell you how I would like you to do that. Um, we've actually created a page that is linked to our website. If you go to graceduarty.com ask, there's a page there where you can ask any question you want. It's completely anonymous. So you, you might have this big question on money, sex, or politics that you want to ask. And you say, boy, I really feel like I would like information about this. I want to understand more about this. It's completely anonymous. I I just ask you to take it seriously. Don't turn it into a joke. Make it completely anonymous. Send it out there. I can't reply to you directly through that, but it's going to flavor what goes into the sermons. The things that we're asking questions about are the things we're going to be addressing in addition to the things that, um, you know, the scripture already lays out clearly for us. So that's kind of cool, right? I hope you'll take advantage of that. the third thing is, God is, if you, if you have the guts to stick it out for this sermon series, God is very probably going to put a stick in your eye at some point. It's going to get uncomfortable for you at some point. There's going to be a point in which you realize, you know what? I am outside of God's will in this area of my life, or I, I'm not so sure that this brings up these memories and this hurt and these scars are opening up because we're addressing these issues. Listen, don't be afraid to ask for help. As the Lord reveals stuff to you that you need help with, you know, find a, a Christian brother or sister who has maturity and knows the Word and get with them and ask for help. If you need counseling, call the church office and let us know and we can set it up for you to meet with either myself or one of our counselors and make sure that you're getting the help that you need. But if this doesn't get from our brains to our lives, it's pointless. I'm not doing this series just so that we have some shock value. We can put a sign out front and go, y'all come. It's so that our lives will be changed. The fourth thing is, um, I'm going to be dealing primarily with big principles. I'm not going to get down into nitty gritty details. When we talk about money, I'm not going to say, hey, here's this investment fund you should probably get into. I'm not going to talk about those kind of things. I'm not going to tell you where to spend your money or how much of it to spend. I'm not going to tell you what to do in your bedroom. I'm not going to tell you who to vote for in the next election. That's not the point of this. The idea is to get some big biblical principles out there that we can use in order to make those decisions on a day-to-day basis. So we're going to be dealing with big principles. And really, that's what today's message and next week's message are going to be devoted to. So let's dive in and get into some of those big principles. The first big principle, if you're taking notes, this is where you want to write. The first big principle is the principle of design. Everything I say in this series is going to be predicated on the fact, are you listening? Ready? Here it is. There is a God. Okay? Now, I know you're shocked to hear me say that. I know you're thinking, wow, I always wondered what he thought about that. No, I know you know that here at Grace Fellowship we believe there is a God, but one of the mistakes we make is we don't often lay out what we believe and then add it up to where how we ought to live. So we're gonna begin with what we believe. Here's what we believe: there is a God and he ain't me. And he ain't you either. He's the God of the Bible. He's the creator of the universe. He's the king of kings and lord of lords. He's the sovereign and he is perfect in every way. And he is love and he is grace and he is truth and he is all the things that the scripture describes him as being. He created everything, including you. And he created everything that he created for a purpose. There is design in God's creation. And therefore, he knows how his creation should work. Furthermore, God is good. Don't you love that song we sang today? You are good, you are good. Like, it's so simple. I could just sing, though, forever, repeating God's goodness. and, And it's not just that he does good. He is good. It's his nature. Goodness emanates from him. Everything that is defined as good is defined as good, not because someone says it's good, but because it's true of God. God is good. And and this is important, guys, because until we first of all understand that there is a God and He is the creator of all things and He is good, why would we ever trust and submit to Him? So we're going to try to establish the goodness of God and the faithfulness of God, and the trustworthiness of God, and the fact that he designed everything that he designed to to work optimally. So when he gives direction, it's not to make things break, it's to make things work. He's the creator, and we are a part of his creation. We're going to get more into that in a few minutes. Second big principle, stewardship. It's the principle of stewardship. As God's creation, human beings made in his image, we have very, very special status. And this is so important for us to understand. Every human being has incredibly special status in all of creation. Um, God has given us that status by making us in his image. And we're in a position of stewardship over the rest of creation. And if we don't get that right, we will never understand how to practically apply the principles that we're going to be looking at in this study. The third thing that I want to make sure that we lay as a foundation is the principle of worship. Everything that God created, how many things? Everything. Everything that God created is designed to please and glorify Him. That is the end of everything. A lot of times we think that things end with us. Like, oh, God created food to feed us. No, God created food to feed us that we might be able to better glorify him. The purpose of everything that God has created is God's glorification. And there are no exceptions to that rule. And until we see the world and our choices and our beliefs and our actions through the lens of that truth, we will never be able to be truly good stewards that God has called us to be, and we will never be able to live according to the design that he's called us to live according to. So we're going to grapple with that idea as well. And Once we get those big principles in place, you're not going to need me to tell you all the details of money, sex, and politics. You're going to be able to figure out how all of that works together for you and your world. So let me add to this foundation by stealing from an old gospel tract and saying, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That's what I'm getting at. This God who created everything loves you, and has a wonderful plan for your life. His purpose is not to hold you back. It's to make a way for you to flourish. Okay, let me say that again. His purpose is not to hold you back. It's to make a way for you to flourish. Jesus came, John 10 that you might have life and that more abundantly. Okay? Um, Matthew eleven, twenty eight, he says, Come to me all who are weary and weighed down, and I will give you what? Rest. He's not some bully in the sky who wants to take away your joy. And I have to establish that because there's going to come a time in this series where you're going to hear something from God's word and you're going to go, wait a second, God's trying to take something from me. And I want to be absolutely clear, do not picture God as this mean old tyrant in the sky with lightning bolts in his hand, looking to throw them at you. And the moment you begin to laugh or have fun or enjoy anything, he's going to step in and make sure that you stop. That is not our God. He designed us to flourish. He designed us to live life to the fullest. And when we walk with him and trust him, we will experience that. Romans 15, 13 tells us that his will for our lives is that we would be filled with hope and filled with joy. He's not trying to keep us from any good thing. And I can go on and on with these verses about how much God loves you and how much he desires to bless and fulfill you. This is important stuff because until we recognize this truth, we will tend to be defensive toward God. And guys, that's where the problems begin. Once we're defensive toward God, once we see God as the one who's trying to get in our pocket and take something out, once we see God as the one who's trying to keep us from a relationship or an activity or something that is finally going to bring meaning to our lives, once we see God as one who's going to insist that we live in a certain way that is going to make us miserable, then what we do is we put up our dukes and we begin to fight. Or we do like Adam and Eve and we begin to hide. And if we are defensive toward God, we're going to find ourselves in a terrible situation. So we need to understand God is not our attacker. He's our lover. He is not the one who wants to take from us. He is the one who wants to give us life and that more abundantly. And I promise you, in this series of messages, you're going to run up against some ideas from God's word that make you pretty uncomfortable. And you are going to have to remember that God loves you, that he is for you, and he is trying to give you fulfillment in life. None of this is authoritative because I say it. and None of this is authoritative because you're hearing about it in church. It's authoritative because God, the creator and Lord, has designed his universe a certain way and then he informs us so that we can live to our fullest. All right. All of that's by way of introduction. Let's roll up our sleeves a little bit and get started. And to do that, we're going to begin at the beginning. So turn to page one of your Bible. Genesis chapter one. And, and what we're going to do with the rest of our time is we're just going to begin here in Genesis 1.1 1, 1, and we're just going to read the rest of this book, okay? No, I won't do that to you. You can read it at home. I'm just going to begin with Genesis 1.1. 1, 1. And, and I know you're familiar with it, but turn there anyway. Hopefully you'll see it today in a way that you've never seen it before. Genesis 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This verse is so foundational that God chose to put it right at the beginning of the book. Everything else depends upon it. Everything else builds upon it. In, the, in fact, You don't even need the whole first verse to begin the foundation. Just take the first four words. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. This is the beginning of the way that God begins to separate in the story himself from everything else. God is the only one that was in the beginning. Somebody came up in between services and said, You know what you're saying about how God was in the beginning? My question is, where did he come from? And here's what I could tell you about that. He didn't come from anywhere. Everything that we know of came from something or somewhere. Everything has a source. Everything has a beginning. Everything has a cause. God has no source. He has no beginning. He has no cause. He is what theologians call the uncaused cause. He is what existed forever. There has never been a time that he did not exist. He was in the beginning before there was anything created, before there was a heaven, God, before there was an earth, God, before there was mankind, God. He has always existed from the beginning before there was a beginning. There, there, this is where we're going to get a little philosophical for today. Philosophers talk about two basic Schools of thought, and we find these are the two schools of thought that exist in our world today about this topic. There is what they call oneism and what they call twoism. Okay, oneism is the belief that everything that is is one, that all that exists is of the same nature. So that means that everything, let's just say, in our world is simple to work on, everything on earth is of the same value, it's of the same nature. Everything is uh, uh, tied together, that that whether it's a man or a goat or a pigeon or a rock or a clump of dirt, all of it is of the same basic substance, and there is only one thing. There is the universe. That's one-ism. And in that, we get religious ideas like pantheism, Panentheism; these are basic ideas that say God is in everything. There's divinity in rocks because God is in rocks, and all that sort of thing. And uh, paganism comes out of this, where we say that there are many gods, and gods find them are found in nature. So there's a god that's the sun, a god that's the river, a god that is the sea, and all of that sort of stuff. That's oneism. And then the other school of thought, and there's only two, is twoism. And twoism says that everything is two. That there are two categories of things in existence. There is God and there is not God. So everything that is not God is God's creation. And God is the uncreated one. The Bible teaches twoism. There is God and there is everything else, two categories of things. So for instance, everything we know of has a beginning, except God, he's in the other category, right? Everything we know of has some level of corruption, except God, he's in the other category. Everything we know of is, uh, came from something and needed something in order to create it, except God, he is the uncreated creator. He is in his own category. And until we get that established, because guys, I know you didn't realize this, but especially those of you who are younger, if you grew up in our school systems here, you have been taught oneism your whole life. You, you have, this is not um, just in the schools. It's not just in the, uh, in the universities. It's not just in the media. It, it's everywhere. It permeates everything. And I don't have time to get into 50 different examples of this, But this is the way most everyone you know thinks. Everyone generally thinks that everything is one until they have to come to grips with the fact that no, there is a separate category and God alone is God. As Christians, we have to come to grips with the fact that there is a God and He alone is in a separate category. So that's Genesis 1.1. Now, verses 2 through 25 go on and show us God busily at work creating everything for five and a half days. Then after the universe has taken shape, God creates something that stands apart from everything else. Look at verse 26, Genesis 1. Then God said, let us make man in our image. Who is us and our... He's talking about Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God and three persons. Again, holy other... He's in that category. The Trinity doesn't make sense to us because it's, God is the only one in that category. He's the only one who is one person uh, in, in three. Um, he is one God in three persons. And so let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the flesh of the sea, over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. You should probably circle or highlight male and female. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, I have given you every plant yielding seed on the surface of all the earth and every tree which uh, has fruit yielding seed. It shall be food for you and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the sky and everything that moves on the earth, which has life. I have given every green plant for food. And it was so God saw all that he made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So day one, he makes a bunch of stuff and says it's good. Day two, he makes a bunch of stuff, says that's good. Day three, he makes a bunch of stuff, that's good. Day four, that's good. Day five, that's good. And day six, he puts the crowning glory of his creation on top, the cherry on top of the sundae is man made in his own image. The only thing that is made in the image of God in all of creation. And he says, looking upon the finished, completed work of creation that he has now given responsibility to the man for. And he says, this is very good. Guys, it's important for us. I told you to circle male and female. I'm so thankful that the under the... Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Moses took the time to say right there in Genesis 1 that when God created man in his image, it's not that he created males in his image and then females. Because later we're going to find out that the the woman is taken out of the man, right? And then somebody gets the idea that, oh, somehow she is lesser because she's female. That is absolutely not true. Both made in the image of God, male and female, okay? So... This is, very, uh, this is a very timely topic, right? Where everybody is talking about the question of whether you know, women ought to be respected in the workplace and how we should treat women and all that kind of stuff. Listen, you don't need to go very deep in that argument to know this. Women must be treated with love and respect because they're made in the image of God. That's the issue, okay? And by the way, so must men and so must children, and so much those who are in the womb, right? So much those who have disability. We we love and respect all of human beings above everything else in creation. They have special value. Why? Because they are made in the image of God. You are made in the image of God. So the next time you look in the mirror feeling lousy about yourself and going, I'm such a loser, I shouldn't even be on the earth. You know what? Stop it. You're made in the image of God. And, and if we don't learn to respect one another based upon that, we are missing the whole point of this. Okay? So we're going to come back to that passage throughout this series. But I want to move ahead to Genesis chapter 2, because in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, uh, we get down to some of the details of that creation. Okay? So we're telling the same story again, but now we're telling it with details. Verse 15, Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden uh, to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground the Lord formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. or whatever the man called the living creature. That was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and the birds of the sky and to the beasts of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And we're going to be dealing with that passage throughout the series. Because we're going to be asking questions about what is the nature of what it means to be a man? What is the nature of what it means to be a woman? How are men and women and men and men and women and women women supposed to interact together? What is God's plan for the family? How does all of that stuff fit together? So we're going to come back to that. But for today, I want you to see just some basic things. Number one, God is God. He is the creator and sustainer of everything that exists. Number two, man is created in the image of God, giving man infinite value in and of himself just by nature of who he is, made in the image of God. And given a special relationship to God and given a special relationship to all of creation. And what is his relationship to all of creation? He's supposed to take care of it, he's the leader of everything that God has created. Man is supposed to take care of God's creation. And so man is blessed with those relationships and he's blessed with the responsibility that comes with it. But as you probably know, if you've read ahead, he doesn't handle the responsibility very well. You see, being made in the image of God is this awesome blessing that gives us this extreme value Regardless of gender or race or age or whether the person is like you or not like you, whether the person struggles with things that you don't struggle with or not, whether the person is disabled or not, every human being with that same dignity and intrinsic uh, worth because God created us beyond anything else in creation. And being made in the image of God involves responsibility. Every human being, by virtue of being made in the image of God, has a free will right? We all make decisions all the time that God doesn't force us one way or the other on. We're given free will. Otherwise, we would be robots. And in chapter 3, Adam and Eve exercise their free will to rebel against God and follow a temptation to try to become their own gods, right? You know the story. There's a serpent. There's a lie. There's a deception. There's forbidden fruit that gets eaten, and there's a curse that leads to death. That's chapter 3. So are you tracking with me so far? We have a God who is good and sovereign and creator and Lord of all. We have a wonderful creation topped off on purpose by mankind who is made in the image of God. And then we have this terrible tragedy where those original people, along with every other person who has ever lived, make a choice using their free will to rebel against God, resulting in a terrible tragedy that theologians call the fall of man. And now fast forward through the eons... To the 21st century, and here we are, trying to understand right and wrong, trying to understand good and bad, trying to differentiate between uh, you know good and evil when it comes to things like money, sex, and politics. But how do we really know what's right? How do we really know what's good on a moral level? I mean, isn't that a matter of opinion? Not if everything I just said about God is true. If God is in fact the creator and king and Lord, if he is the designer and he designed us to flourish and gave us standards by which we should live, then right and wrong is not a matter of personal opinion and it is not a matter of community consensus. It is a a matter of what flows out of the being of God himself. And so we don't get to mess with that. We have to bow and understand because God is good. The definition of goodness flows out of his nature. We don't strive to do good merely because somebody says this is good. We strive to do good because God is good. And as those who are made in his image, we bring him glory when we do what is good, which is the purpose for which everything was created. You see how it all begins to connect? It all comes down to God's design. And, and everything that is designed is designed with a purpose. T- take, for instance, a scalpel that a surgeon would use to perform surgery. Now, that scalpel in and of itself is neither good nor bad. It really depends on what's done with it, right? If that surgeon uses that scalpel in order to cut out a tumor and bring life to somebody, then it has done a good thing. But if that scalpel is used to stab someone to death, and commit murder, it has done a bad thing. Now, is it the scalpel's fault? No, because the scalpel has no free will, and that's what makes man different. We have free will, which means we have responsibility for our decisions. And all of this to lay the foundation for later talks when we're going to get into what decisions has God already uh, told us we need to make, and which ones has he given us freedom to make outside of that. So human beings being created in the image of God, we have a free will and we have responsibility and we have design and we have purpose. We have moral choices and ethical responsibilities. We're responsible, for example, to care for the rest of creation. That's Genesis 1 and 2. We're responsible to choose to honor God and not dishonor Him. We're responsible to love other human beings and treat them all with respect and dignity. We're responsible to use our power and our resources as stewards, mind, body, wealth, energy, time, because none of those things belong to us. They belong to God, and we are His stewards, which we're going to unpack at great length. And, and all of this to just simply lay some foundation. Next week, we're going to lay more foundation. We're going to talk about What does it mean to be a steward? And in what way does God judge our stewardship? We're going to talk about what does it mean to be a a design, a part of God's creation, and how do I glorify God with that? We're going to talk about the issue of submission and how important that is in our lives if we're ever to walk according to God. All of that before I say a word about money, sex, or politics. Because if we don't get that foundation laid then it's going to come down to, I don't know, what do you think? I don't know, what do you think? I don't know, what do you think? But it really doesn't come down to, I don't know, what do you think? It's, let me tell you what I think. And and that's what we have way too much of. So what we're going to do is we're going to trust that there is this God who is good, who loves us so much that he designed us and created us in his image, and who has a plan for our lives and a purpose that is absolutely beautiful, that is about fulfillment and joy and peace and purpose and we're going to figure out from the word of God how do we take these practical areas of life and obviously it goes beyond money, sex and politics but how do we take the most practical and personal areas of life and move them under the lordship of Jesus Christ and can he be trusted if we do it because the fact of the matter is he's going to ask you to let go of something And he's not doing it to take something from you. He's doing it to give something to you. And we're going to dig into that all in the next several weeks. For now, let's stand and pray together.